Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, The Spirit-Filled Life, in which we look at what the Bible says about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the world and in our lives. Here is Pastor Nick. Well, this morning we're continuing in a series that we started last week called The Spirit-Filled Life. The Spirit-Filled Life. In this series, we're taking five weeks to study about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We started last week, so today is week two of this five-week series. Would you please bow your heads with me, and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you that it speaks to us. And we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would speak to us, teach us, guide us, transform us into the people you desire us to be, Lord, and give us a receptivity to the work of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's 2012, and we're standing in a courtroom, not because we did anything wrong. Nobody was in trouble. We were in this courtroom because we were there for an adoption hearing. Because a few years earlier, my wife and I had taken in a kid from our church who needed a home. And initially, we had taken him in as a foster child. But now, a few years later, Rosemary and I are standing there with our two younger children and our soon-to-be son. And we're standing there before the judge in order to adopt him as our child. And the judge asks a few questions. And then he stops. And he says, I want you to understand what you're doing by adopting this boy is your son. If you adopt him, you need to understand that he will have all of the rights and privileges as your biological children do. He will be an heir to everything that you own when you die. He will be your child forever, and you need to treat him as such. You need to treat him as a full-fledged child, not a secondary child, but a full-fledged member of your family. And then the judge turned to our soon-to-be son, and he asked him, because he was old enough, he was a teenager, he asked him, do you want to be adopted by these people? And he said, yes. And then the judge asked us, are you sure that you want to adopt this child as your son? And we said, yes. And so the judge made an official declaration that he was officially, at that moment, our son. And in that moment, his status changed. He went from being a foster child to being our son. And to prove it, he was given legal documents. They even issued him a new birth certificate. They gave him a new name. But it was only later on that I I really started to understand what that moment must have meant for him. What that moment meant for him. When his status changed from being a foster child to being an adopted son. Because as a foster child, even though he lived in our home, there was always a separation, right? He was never really completely, fully, 100% one of us. You see, as a foster child, there's always some degree of uncertainty about your situation and about your future. Because when you're a foster child, your status in the home is temporary. That's the nature of foster parenting. It's a temporary situation until that child grows up and moves on or until the foster family decides that they no longer want to have that child in their home. See, to be a foster child is is like being a guest in somebody else's home. And along with that comes this fear, right? This fear that, yes, I have a place to stay. I have a place in this home right now. But if I mess up, if I do the wrong things, that could all change. But as an adopted child, now he's a full-fledged member of our family. No matter how old he gets, 
He'll never stop being a member of our family. No matter if he messes up, if he makes mistakes in life, his status is permanent. And with that comes a sense of security and belonging that comes from that sense of finality that allows you to rest. That finality allows you to rest because your status is no longer contingent on your performance or your behavior. You know, I have a good friend who was adopted, and I asked him one time, you know, does it bother you that you were adopted? And he said, no, it doesn't bother me. He goes, look, your parents, they got stuck with you. They didn't have a choice. My parents, they chose me, man. And with our son, it, it was even more pronounced than that because we adopted him not as an infant or a toddler even. We adopted him as a teenager. Have you guys ever met a teenage boy? They're not that cute, right? Like, you can understand, like, why people adopt babies. I want to adopt all the babies I see, right? But nobody wants to adopt, like, a teenager, right? Like, a teenager, they smell, they're awkward, they're always asking for money, they're constantly eating all your food, they're moody, they're, they're like, defiant, right? And babies coo, and teenagers, like, yell at you, right? So even though we had seen him, though, at his worst, as a teenager, you know, pimples and all, we said, we still choose you. We want you to be with us forever. And in the book of Romans, chapter 8, the Bible tells us that that adoption is a perfect picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. It says this in Romans, chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of adoption because by the work of the Holy Spirit that we can know God as Father. The title of today's message is The Work of the Spirit in the Life of a Believer. The Work of the Spirit in the Life of a Believer. Last week, we kicked off this series looking at the person and work of the Holy Spirit by doing an overview and giving an important foundation that we're going to be referencing back to every week. But today, specifically, we're going to look at this aspect of the Holy Spirit, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian, in the life of a believer. And here's what we're going to see. To be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit within you who transforms you from the inside out to make you more like Jesus. So to be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit within you who transforms you from the inside out to make you more like Jesus. That's our summary sentence, our takeaway truth for today. I encourage you, write it down in your notes. There's note cards in the chairs if you need them. Take a photo of it, whatever you got to do to remember it, and take it with you as you go so you remember what we talked about today. And here's what it is. To be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit within you who transforms you from the inside out to make you more like Jesus. So let's take that sentence and let's break it down as we study our text today here in Romans chapter 8. Let's look at the first part of that. To be a child of God. You know, in our society, we have this kind of misnomer. It's kind of a platitude, right? Like a Hallmark greeting platitude that's actually misleading and incorrect. And here's what it is, is that we, we often use this phrase or we'll say this thing that we're all children of God. Every human being is a child of God by nature of being a human. Now, listen, it's absolutely true that God created all people and that God cares deeply about all people. The Bible says that every single person is precious to God, very precious, because he created them and he made them in his own image. They bear the image of God. 
But the term child of God, and this is important, the term child of God in the Bible is specifically reserved for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and received him as their Savior and as their Lord. Check out what it says in the Gospel of John chapter 1. It says this, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, the term child of God is reserved for those who have put their faith in Jesus. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because the term title, child of God, it speaks of a particular relationship with God that not everybody has. A particular relationship with God that we're not naturally born into. You aren't just a child of God by nature of of your birth. In other words, something has to happen in order for you to become a child of God. And the way you become a child of God, the scriptures tell us, is through adoption. And what that means is that God takes people who are not naturally his children, and he makes them his children. You see, you aren't born a child of God. Being a child of God is something that you become through an act of God. And to be adopted as a child of God means receiving a new identity, and a new destiny. A new identity and a new destiny. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. We'll read it again. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So there's a contrast being made here, isn't there, between slaves and adopted sons. Some people relate to God in the same way that a slave relates to a master. You see, a slave's relationship to their master is based on that slave's performance. If he wants to have a good relationship with his master, he's got to perform good. He's got to perform well. And the reason why slaves obey their masters is out of fear, fear of punishment. And that's how many people think about God and relate to God, the same way that a slave relates to their master. But here's what's really interesting. You know, in our day and age, most people who adopt children, they tend to adopt children who are babies, maybe infants, toddlers even, maybe young children. But did you know that in Jesus' time, in the Roman Empire, at the time when the New Testament was being written, that isn't how adoption usually took place. In the Roman Empire, at the time of Jesus, adoption was primarily something that rich people did for their slaves. It's something that rich people did for their slaves. So it's interesting, isn't it, that this verse talks about being a slave versus being an adopted son. See, slavery in the ancient world was almost always related to poverty, and it was almost always temporary. Poverty and temporary. Remember those two things. So if you were a poor person, and say you didn't have any money, right? There was no kind of like social safety net like there is today. And so what you needed to do, let's say you need money to build a house for your family. You need money to buy a piece of land or buy a business. What would you do? Well, one of the things you could do is you could sell yourself into slavery for a limited amount of time in exchange for an amount of money. Or let's say you got yourself into debt and you had no way to pay off that debt. Well, one of the ways you could get out of debt was by selling yourself into slavery for a time and becoming someone's slave in exchange for having your debt paid off. So if you were a wealthy person back in the day and you wanted to show kindness to your servants or your slaves, one of the kindest things you could do was to forgive their debt and set them free. And that's a picture that the Bible uses to describe what God has done for us in Jesus. Our debt before God has been forgiven, and we have been set free. But you know what? Sometimes nobles, they would go one step beyond that. 
rather than just forgiving the debt of their slaves, they would go beyond that and they would actually adopt their slaves as sons into their own family legally. That was the ultimate act of kindness that you could do for a person. Because think about it. If you're a poor person, to be adopted into a wealthy family, that changes your life forever. Not only was your debt forgiven, but in an instant, you went from being a poor person, a debtor, scraping by. You went and suddenly, in an instant, you became a wealthy, privileged son. It would change your destiny, and it would change your identity. And we're told here in Romans chapter 8 that this is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And what that also means is this. The way that you become a child of God is by the work of the Holy Spirit. The way you become a child of God is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It says that he, God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus, and he tells him, Nicodemus, in order for you to receive the kingdom of God, in order for you to be right with God and have eternal life, you have to be born of the Spirit. And he says, why? He says, because it is the Spirit who gives life. The Spirit gives life. So that's why if we come back to our text here in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, it says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's interesting that it brings up suffering in regard to being a child of God, because I think that we sometimes think, well, if, if God is my father and I'm his child, his beloved child, then he's not going to let bad things happen to me. He's going to protect me. But God says, no, no, no. Don't think that being a child of God necessarily means that you're going to have an easy and comfortable and protected life. Because if Jesus, the only begotten son of God, suffered in his life, then why would you be surprised if God's plan for your life might include walking through some hardship and difficulty in this broken world as well? But remember this, just as Jesus' suffering was not meaningless, same is true for you as a child of God. God promises to redeem your sufferings and use them for good. Look at what it says in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So how do you know if you are a child of God? How do you know? Paul tells us in verse 16, he says, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But how does he do that? That brings us to the next part of our sentence, which is this. To be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit within you. To have the Holy Spirit within you. So to be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit within you. Now you remember, last week we talked about three different relationships that the Holy Spirit has with people. We talked about how the Holy Spirit is with people, Holy Spirit is upon people, and here we talk about how the Holy Spirit is in some people. So let's, let's break this down. We talked about how the Holy Spirit is with all people. And what is he doing with all people? He's convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment, drawing them to Jesus by bringing them to an awareness of why they need a Savior and that God has provided the Savior that they need. But what happens then is that when you put your faith in Jesus, when you trust in him for your salvation, we read that the Holy Spirit then begins to live in you. 
Not, no longer just with you, but when you are saved, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. Now, it was not always that way. In the Old Testament, we read about how the Holy Spirit was with people, striving with them, convicting them, speaking to them about their need to humble themselves and turn to the Lord. And we read about how the Holy Spirit was also sometimes upon people to empower them to do what God called them to do. But through the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel, God made a promise that one day his spirit was actually going to dwell within his people. But that was a future day yet to come. Look at what it says in Ezekiel 36 about this future day which was yet to come. God says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah talks about the same thing, that a day is coming when God is going to change our hearts from the inside out by placing his spirit within us. And yet for all the people in the Old Testament, that day never came within their lifetimes. It was always a future event that was sometime to come until Jesus. Jesus, on the night before he went to the cross, at the Last Supper, he spoke to his disciples about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. And one of the things he told them there, he said, the Holy Spirit, who up until this point has been with you, the time is coming very soon when the Holy Spirit will no longer just be with you, but he will be in you as the prophets promised. And then what happened? Jesus died. He resurrected. And a few days after his resurrection, we read that he met with his disciples. And it says that he breathed upon them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And it was in that moment, as they believed, that the Holy Spirit came within them. And they were born again. It couldn't have happened before that because Jesus had not yet died for their sins and been raised for their justification. But now that Jesus had accomplished these things for them, for their salvation, the Holy Spirit now came within them who believed. And this is what that means. It means this, that every person who believes in Jesus for their salvation has the Holy Spirit within them. Sometimes people ask me, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit within me? Here's the answer. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in him for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, for your right standing before God? If the answer is yes, then you have the Holy Spirit within you. If the answer is no, then you don't have the Holy Spirit within you. It's that simple. How do I know that? Well, because look at what it says in Romans chapter 8, this very passage. It says in verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Furthermore, look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's writing to the Christians in Ephesus, and he says, In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, the moment you put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Savior, the moment you give your life to him as your Lord, in that very moment, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and begins living within you. That's why, as our sentence says, to be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit within you. But this brings up a couple of questions, right? That commonly asked questions about the Holy Spirit within us and how this all works. One of these questions is this. The first question I'll address is this. Does God ever remove the Holy Spirit from a person, for example, because of disobedience? 
So does God ever place his spirit inside of you? Would he then ever remove his spirit, let's say, because of disobedience? And the reason people ask this question is because in Psalm 51, King David is writing, he's praying to God after he had committed some horrendous sins. And here's what he prays to God. He says, God, do not cast me away from your presence and do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. Furthermore, we read about other times in the Bible where God's Spirit departs from people. So for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read that the Spirit departed from King Saul. In Judges chapter 16, we read about how the Spirit departed from Samson. So what does that mean? Does that mean that if you do bad things, if you disobey God, God might remove his spirit from within you? The answer to this question brings us back to this foundational thing that I gave you last week, which is this understanding of the three different relationships that the Holy Spirit has with people. We come back to that foundation. We remember this, remember? With, upon, and in. Remember, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was with people, convicting them of their sins, speaking to their hearts. And the Holy Spirit was also upon people to empower them to do what God had called them to do. But at that point, the Holy Spirit was not yet within people. That's something that only happened after Jesus' death and resurrection. So when we read in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit departed from certain people, understand that's not a situation in which the Holy Spirit was indwelling that person and the indwelling spirit was removed. No, no, that was a situation in which God's empowering presence was removed from their life. And that's very evident if you read the story of Samson, for example. He lost the empowerment that he had when the Spirit was removed. But for a person who has been sealed with the Holy Spirit, indwelling them as a guarantee of their inheritance, we never read of God removing his Spirit from someone in that, in that sense, in that situation. Because remember, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. And God doesn't unadopt us when we make mistakes and when we mess up, which is really good news. If he has sealed you as a guarantee of your salvation, then that is exactly what it is. It's a guarantee of your inheritance, a guarantee that he will see you through and he will bring to completion the good work that he has begun and started in you. He won't give up on you, in other words. And that's really good news for you and for me. But this brings up another question that people often ask about the Holy Spirit, and that is this. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And how do you know if you've committed it? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And how do you know if you've committed it? Because in Matthew chapter 12, some people came and they accused Jesus of being an agent of Satan. They said that the things Jesus he did, he did them by the power of the devil. And he was an agent of Satan. And Jesus warned those people. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, listen, you guys can say whatever you want about me. You can call me all kinds of nasty names. You can accuse me of being an agent of the devil. But I'll tell you this. There's one sin that is not forgivable, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So he said this, you can say whatever you want about me, but make sure that you don't commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because that is the one thing that cannot be forgiven. Now, a lot of people read that and they freak out, right? They're like, oh no, I think I did that back in 2007 on accident one time in my sleep. I, I woke up, I was having a bad dream. I was thinking to myself, telling myself, don't commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Don't do it. Just walking down the street every day, telling myself, don't commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then one day I'm, I'm talking in my sleep and I accidentally did it and now it's all over and I can never be saved. 
So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and how do you know if you've done it? Again, this brings us back to what? To those three relationships with the Holy Spirit. Guys, it's so foundational. Three relationships with the Holy Spirit. Now, what relationship did the people who Jesus was speaking to, what was their relationship with the Holy Spirit? It was the first of those, wasn't it? The Holy Spirit was with them, convicting them of their need for a Savior, their need to embrace the Savior, Jesus, that God had provided for them. And what were they doing? Well, blasphemy can be defined as as defiant irreverence. Defiant irreverence. So think about what these people were doing. They were defiantly and irreverently resisting the work of the Holy Spirit on their lives, which was to convict them of their need to embrace the Savior that God had provided for them. And Jesus was warning them, watch out, watch out. You can say whatever you want about me, but this is dangerous business, guys. If you keep this up, eventually this window of opportunity will close. You will run out of time if you keep going this way, and then there will be no way for you to be forgiven and for you to be saved because you will have rejected the Savior that God provided for you. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to continually, defiantly, irreverently resist the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing you to Jesus. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr, he says this to a group of people in Jerusalem who are about to kill him. He says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's the idea here. Resisting the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So how do you not commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's really easy. Here's how. The way to not commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to confess your sins, to embrace Jesus as your Savior, to put your trust in him and what he did to save you. When you do that, God's Spirit comes inside of you and makes you a child of God and seals you for the day of redemption. But that's not all. Let's continue in our sentence. To be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit within you who transforms you from the inside out. Paul tells us there in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, he says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, there are several ways in which the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, Paul tells us when we don't know how to pray, have you guys ever been in situations like that? You don't know how to pray. Maybe it's for a given situation in your life. Someone says, pray for me. You're like, I don't even know what to pray. Maybe I'll pray for this, but I don't know if that's God's will. How do I pray when I don't know how to pray? Maybe you're overwhelmed and you struggle to find the words. Maybe you're new to, to Christianity and walking with Jesus. You don't know how to pray. The Bible says this, that he helps us in our weakness. When we don't know how to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And that's really good news, Paul tells us, because there in verse 27, he says, because the Spirit knows the mind of God and is able to intercede for us according to the will of God. But it's not just in prayer that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, look at what it says. It says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
So the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring freedom in our lives. Freedom from what? Freedom from the things in our lives that hold us down and hold us back. Things like addictions, patterns of sin, ways of thinking that hold us back and keep us down from becoming all that God wants us to be, from the work of God that he wants to accomplish in our lives. And the way the Holy Spirit brings freedom into our lives is by transforming us from the inside out. You know, one of the ways that God transforms us from the inside out is by changing your desires, by changing your desires. The spirit within you changes your heart so that you begin to love and want and desire the things that God loves and wants and desires. Not only does the spirit change your desires, but you know what else he does? He gives you the strength to overcome temptation in your life when you face temptation. He gives you the strength to overcome. Another way that God transforms us is by filling us with boldness rather than fear. Boldness rather than fear. We see this with Jesus' disciples. Do you remember after Jesus was taken away and crucified, the disciples were so full of fear. They were running away. They were hiding behind locked doors. But it says in Acts chapter 4, it says that they gathered together and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And as they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they became extremely bold. They became bold. Their fear was replaced with boldness to step out and fulfill God's purpose and calling on their lives. Jesus told us another work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to transform us. He's teaching us and he's reminding us of everything that he said to us, everything that God has spoken to us. The Holy Spirit within us leads us and guides us furthermore. And we're going to talk more about that next week. I want you guys to be here for that. That's the next week. That's part three of this series on the Holy Spirit, is we're going to talk about what it means to walk in the Spirit, to be led and guided by the Holy Spirit. So make sure you're here for that next week. But listen, if the work of the Holy Spirit is to transform us, then what is he transforming us into? Like, what's the goal? What's the, what's the end game? And that brings us to the final part of our sentence. To be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit within you who transforms you from the inside out to make you more like Jesus, to make you more like Jesus. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 8, just a little bit lower, in verse 29. For those whom he, that's God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The end goal of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is to make us more like Jesus. That's what this verse is telling us. To make us more like Jesus. In 1 Peter, Peter says that the work of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify us, which means to make us pure and to make us holy, which ultimately means to make us like the one who is ultimately pure and holy, which is Jesus. Now maybe you'd say, well, I'm not sure I want to be like Jesus. I'm not sure I want to be a 30-year-old man with a beard who wears white robes and isn't married right? Maybe you say, I'm not sure that's what I want. But listen, who was Jesus? Think about who he was. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, one of my favorite verses about Jesus, it says that Jesus was the happiest person who ever lived. Did you know that? He was the happiest person who ever lived. Jesus was God come to us to reveal himself to us. And as God, Jesus embodied both the truth of God and the love of God perfectly and completely. So when we read descriptions, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, of what love, true love, is really like, that's also a description of what Jesus is like, and it's a description of what God wants to make us into. Love is kind. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love is patient. 
So what is the end goal of this work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? It's to transform us and make us more like Jesus. And that is ultimately for our good. Friends, that is ultimately what all of us deep down desire to happen in our lives. You know, sometimes people hear the word holy and they're like, oh, great. God wants me to be holy. It's going to be a snooze fest, right? Like, this is going to be boring. Or like, God wants holiness. More like boringness, right? But listen, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, it says that Jesus was the happiest person who ever lived and that his happiness was directly related to his holiness. His holiness caused his happiness. Think about that. So much of the sorrow in this world, the sadness and the pain and the hurt is caused directly as a result of sin. But God wants to set us free from that stuff. He wants to set us free so we can experience love and joy and freedom as children of God. And the way he brings that joy and freedom into our lives is setting us free from the habits and sins that hold us back and keep us down. He wants to strengthen us in our weaknesses and transform us from the inside out to make us more like Jesus. And he does this by the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And that's why if the Holy Spirit indwells you, you can't lose the Holy Spirit, but you know what you can do? You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul says this to the Ephesians. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Instead, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, let it be put away from you along with malice, but instead be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We talked about last week how the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force, but a person. And as a person, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And what is it? how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, here's how. As the Holy Spirit is making us more and more into the image of Christ, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we act in ways that are contrary to the heart of Jesus. When we hold on to bitterness rather than forgiving others. When we are overcome by anger and lash out and hurt others rather than being kind and tender-hearted as God has been towards us. So the question is this, how do we avoid grieving the Holy Spirit? And here's the answer. We avoid grieving the Holy Spirit by looking to Jesus and what he did for you and surrendering yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Rather than resisting the work of the Holy Spirit, we want to be those who surrender ourselves to the work of the Spirit. Maybe there are some of you here today, and you have been resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you know it. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been convicting you about something. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been drawing you to Jesus, but you've been resisting, and you've been saying no. You've been resisting the Spirit. Maybe the Spirit's been speaking to your heart and urging you to surrender your life fully over to God. You know, it's one thing to believe that Jesus exists, but it's another thing altogether to trust him and to surrender your life to him. Maybe there are others of you, and you do have the Holy Spirit living within you, but there are things in your life that are grieving the Holy Spirit. You're quenching or stifling the work of the Spirit in your life, and I want to encourage you to, to surrender yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, because the end result of the Holy Spirit's work in your life will be freedom and strength and true happiness. The Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer is to make you into a child of God through regeneration. He then indwells you to seal you for the day of redemption, and he works within you to strengthen you in your weakness, to fulfill God's purpose for your life, and lead you into greater joy. And the reason this is possible is because Jesus Christ died for your sins and resurrected to give you new life. 
So rather than resisting the work of the Holy Spirit, may we give ourselves over completely to what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. Friends, to be a child of God is to have the Holy Spirit within you who transforms you from the inside out to make you more like Jesus. Please stand with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.